Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Lars Ulrich. Obviously, there were compromises, things we wouldn't have thrown ourselves into this endeavor if we weren't somewhat open, no matter how much we complained, <laughs> to looking at some of this stuff differently. James Hetfield. Our fan base started to relate a lot more to what the, those lyrics meant. I'm not the only misfit out there or the person who thinks this way. I'm scared too. I don't want to say it, but, you know, if we're scared together, it's okay. Kirk Hammett. There is nothing jarring in the entire, like, tonal spectrum of it all, you know? It was like the sound would envelope you, and then James's singing would come in, and it felt so powerful and effective. The Metallica Podcast. The Black Album. This is side three. Play on. Sound off. I think the last three records, three, four records maybe, uh, had just been primarily just when we were tracking drums or doing basic tracks, it was primarily just James and I. And so trying to catch that thing of the four of us playing together, you know, we went to the biggest room we could find in L.A. Uh, at one-on-one uh, out in Lancashire in North Hollywood. Interesting tidbit, uh, which may not seem super obvious in historical context, but and Justice for All and the Black Album were recorded in the same studio, which I think is interesting <laughs> because you can't have two records that sound more opposite of each other. So that's so obvious, and I never even realized that until like, dude, you so, said it just now. That's you know, so, so friggin' obvious. I remember setting up the drums and doing all this. I mean, they were fucking moving baffles around and doing shit for days. But it is interesting that those two records actually, obviously, primarily were recorded in the same space. Uh, we loved that space when I heard James's vocals. Up until that point, it was like the instruments were the primary thing and the vocals were almost like a necessary evil or it was sort of something. It was just, okay, well, there's got to be some vocals in there. And then obviously as James grew more and more confident as a singer, as a performer, as a writer, those vocals became a bigger and bigger piece of everything that was going on. Most of the early records were uh, double-tracked, right? So one vocal and then another vocal on top of it to make the vocal sound bigger. It took a little while, but I tell you, as time went on, it, it got so much easier. The other thing you mentioned about doubling of the vocals, no one really told me that, you know, you have to double your vocals because your voice is a little interesting, a little different <laughs> or something. And it's like, well, do other people do that? It's like, yeah, other people do. It's like, then, okay, uh, all right. It does smooth it out. I know my voice on its own was not as great as I would have liked it to be. So doubling it did give it a uniqueness and doubling the vocals all the way up through Master of Puppets and then and Justice for All. And then 
when it came to the Black Album, Bob, that was one of his main goals. He said, we're going to stop doubling it because, you know, when you double your voice, you don't want to do something too crazy that you can't double it, you know? And that happened a lot of times where I do some really cool thing and then I could never double it. So just doing a single voice, single take was a new thing for me and, you know, didn't have to fear that I was going to replicate it again. And I just remember that he got James to get away from the double take, you know, of double tracking all the vocals and getting James's voice and confidence to, to do something else. That was where I was like, holy shit, this has got a whole, whole different vibe to it. This sounds like, it sounds human. It sounds like it's not these perfect drums and these perfect fucking guitars. And then James laying down this perfect double thing. That's everything it should be. Bob Rock, the Black Album producer. It's how he recorded before me. We didn't really do vocals until you know, after the guitars and everything was finished. And when he, you know, we talked about it and, and he really just said, you know, I want to sing. I want to have a big sound. Just that album, it's so personal and you can hear it. And the change in his vocal from being doubled to just a single voice where somebody's great lyrics, great melodies, it was just very listenable, you know? And I think that's what made the difference. With time the child draws And then James was single tracking his vocals and Bob got his personality out of him. And I remember when I heard that the first couple of times, it was like, fuck, this is this is a whole different thing, you know? Kirk Hammett, lead guitar. I have to say, I mean, it, my experience was like yours. I remember I walking into the control room at AM at one point and hearing James's like a, a, a vocal mix he did. And I was just standing there going, James has never sounded like that before ever. James is really singing. And I was just kind of blown away by it all. Just like the hugeness of it and how easy it was to listen to. You know, how just like... Easy listening? Is it was, well, it's just like there was, there was nothing. There was nothing jarring in the entire like tonal spectrum of it all, you know? It was like the sound would, would envelope you and then James's singing would come in and it felt so powerful and effective and again you know i'll use this like penetrating it's penetrated deep and lars talks about the character of the vocals and yeah holding the mic i mean i was singing in the control room with a microphone, that was kind of unheard of. And I loved the fact that we were breaking the rules of the rules that we had set up for ourselves even. So it was very freeing, not just that moment, but another time when he's like, you know, just do an ad lib. It's like, what is that? <laughs> you know, I didn't even know what an ad lib was. Bring like, an audience well, in what here. What <laughs> you kind of do when you're playing live, you know, just like a, Ooh, or a, yeah, whatever, you know, a little thing that you do live, you know, 
I mean, without the F-bomb or something, but it was so odd trying to do an ad lib in the studio. Like, what? I'm not like, what, you know, smokestack lightning, yeah, baby, or something, you know. I had no clue what I was supposed to be doing at that point. And he's like, just scream right here. It's like, I don't scream. I guess, I, I don't know. So he helped me come even more out of my shell. I said, well, if you listen to a lot of records, there's all these little ad-libs that happen. And I said, I think they're important because it puts you in the space and the feel. Like if you were in live and you were doing something, you'd naturally just do it. Like, whoa, let's do it. And I said, when you do a record, do you want to have that same feel? That makes the record sound real and not just put together by parts, right? So that was a new thing. And it took him a while to get comfortable with it. And now he's really good at it. So be it. No more. Pieces to prepare for. So be it. talk about being defensive <laughs> we would pretty much write the music write everything and then the first time they'd hear the vocals is when i would sing them <laughs> you know we weren't rehearsing them we weren't writing the song around a lyric we weren't writing the song around i remember bob saying this is so freaking backwards how did you guys get this far by writing this way? You know, wait a minute. You know, all of the great writers, they write a poem and then you build a song around it. You know, your Tom Waits, your Bob Dylan's, your all of these great songwriters. And I mean, they were all people that I admire, but I had no clue that we were doing it the other way. It's just how it was. The music needed a, a title. It's like, naming your pet. I wouldn't know what I'd need to write about until I heard the music. And then that would give it more of its character. I would draw little pictures or something before I even wrote lyrics. I would draw pictures of how the song made me feel. And then I would start writing words around that picture. Every album's that way. I mean, kill them all. I thought that was me, you know? I'm banging my head against the stage and I'm gonna seek and destroy and drink. That's what I knew. That's what we all knew. What we set out to do, which was, and I remember, I mean, that holy fuck moment when you and I up in that house in Berkeley, it was like the first day and we had Kirk's awesome riff and it was like, there's a great, song and this riff and the challenge was let's write the simplest song out of this riff and basically every part that you added to it just came out of the riff mm. like the intro came out of the riff the the verse the the bridge everything came out of just that riff it was like that one riff gave birth to the whole song and i did my best to just make it swing and and that whole thing and you know and the, jump and that's right and then we <laughs> we got to sapper true and <clears throat> And it was like, holy shit, we may be able to set out and be successful at what the mission statement is, which is to write a bunch of shorter songs that will hopefully turn an audience on. 
And then as we grow, as we evolve as people, get involved with, wow, outside people, they're thinking this. And what do I think about what they think? And what do they think about me thinking about what they think? All of that craziness that goes on in my head. But just trying to get as simple, trying to get as, I guess, more from the heart. And Cliff Bernstein, our manager, definitely helped me with that. Cliff Bernstein, Metallica manager, co-founder, Q-Prime Artist Management. I feel that the audience has a connection to James through his lyrics. This is something that we have always emphasized, that you reach people mainly through the lyrics. And James has always had the ability to, I'm going to say, comfort people, fans, audience, comfort people in the sense that he's a guy that's been through it, okay? He knows what your insecurities are, what your fears are, what your alienation is all about. He knows it because he's lived it. And, you know, he's very good at expressing that. And Bob as well. You know, tap into what's going on inside you because you can't go wrong that way. You just really can't. If you're being historical or writing about what other other writers can write a story or here, this is about a piece of history and this guy goes through this journey and that's not me. I'm not writing a story about something. I'm writing what my story is unfolding, you know, right in that moment. And what are my fears? What are my worries? What are my questions? What are my answers? And I think that's how our fan base started to relate a lot more to what the, those lyrics meant. They're not alone. They're, you know, I'm not the only misfit out there or the person who thinks this way. I'm scared too. I don't want to say it, but, you know, if we're scared together, it's okay. Never care for what they say. As a band in the studio, that was the first time we actually did that. Tried that technique, you know, tracking with everyone in the band in the room, but only recording drums. It made sense to us, you know, it gave the album definitely a lot liver feel overall, you know, and that was something that Bob Rock suggested we do. And we were like, really out for it. And, you know, I, I definitely think that the, the songs got better and tighter that way. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move 
Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, Side 3 continues. Jason Newstead, Metallica bassist from 1986 to 2001. I can only really give props to Bob. I have nothing bad to say about Bob at all. He came into us too, don't forget that. You know what I mean? You're still coming in, but he's only one man coming in. He comes in with what precedes him and what he's been able to produce. So you just let's let's think about that, what we were both up against, and the posturing that had to take place in the first bit until everybody kind of find their place. The mutual respect had to be earned, okay? So once it was, we were rolling. In the studio, people ask me, are you nervous, you know, when they, the red light goes on and you're recording, you got all this pressure? I'm like, uh, no, because like, I'm more nervous with a guitar not in my hands. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine in all situations if I have my guitar and I'm playing. It's crazy. And I just realized this just, just lately. You know, I, I can work under pressure because when I have my guitar, it's like a pressure release valve. Literally a pressure release valve. And, you know, I can always deliver musically under most situations. Maybe traumatizing is too strong a word, <laughs> but it was a, it was a very... It was very odd. Obviously, there were compromises, things. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't have thrown ourselves into this endeavor if we weren't somewhat open, no matter how much we complained, <laughs> to looking at some of this stuff differently. Eventually, we did, obviously, after much resistance, sort of end up going along with some of these bigger picture decisions, like Kirk is saying. No matter how crazy any of us might have made Bob, it had to be a thrill at a few different spots where James did a thing, or I hit a note or got low on something, 12-string bass here, whatever, little vocal. He had it, ooh, I think we're onto something. You know, there had to be those times, like, yeah, we're gonna make the great record, let's make a great record. Sure, he could say that 30 years later, and I'm sure that was his intention. It was intense, man. It was intense in there, and there was a lot of hours playing the same stuff over and over and over again that I didn't really think was necessary. But it got us to where it got to now. <laughs> think about it. It's just crazy. I wouldn't have been able to, uh, to comprehend it back then. It was a good 
14, 15 months from we started writing till we wrapped the record up. So, I mean, the battle cry was just simplify. I mean, all four of us share a love and appreciation for bands like the Rolling Stones, for bands like ACDC and, and for stuff that is much more traditional blues-based rock and roll. It's a part of all of our schooling. We talked about the shorter songs of the Misfits. I remember at some point, whether it was you and I or you and I and Cliff Bernstein talking about like a song like Jumping Jack Flash. So a lot of just stuff that showed up, obviously, which is probably fairly thematic of, of all of what we're talking about here just for the first time on our horizon, on our radar. Peter and I, my co-founder at Q Prime, had been working on uh, as consultants on the Rolling Stones Steel Wheels tour. And I like to regale Lars, and Peter did too, and other band members about our adventures with the Rolling Stones. But the one thing that he continually pointed out was the depth of their catalog. How many amazing songs they had that were written and recorded over a long period of time. And how those were you know, airplay songs. And I think that all made an impression on the band, on Lars in particular. Like, yes, why don't we strive to do something like that? Take a band like Status Quo. Status Quo were a huge, huge part of my childhood. And so whether it's the harder, you know, when you get into songs like Down Down or Rain or Caroline or Roll Over Lay Down, you know, some of those mid-70s albums like Hello or Quo or On the Level, it's all... It's blues-based hard rock and roll. The amplifiers are a little more distorted, and it's turned up to sometimes 12 instead of 11. But again, I mean, it all comes from the same three Chuck Berry riffs and the same Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon riffs and, and so on and so forth. And just like ACDC and just like Rolling Stones, and that part of Metallica's musical lineage is something that we're obviously very open about and very proud of. And I think um, it certainly explains how we sort of have one foot in a lot of these different musical worlds, you know? It was a, a combination of of the shorter songs, the simpler songs, the songs that drums, I was more like, okay, I just want to set up the riffs rather than trying to lead, you know, okay, justice for all, okay, this whole thing starts with a crazy drum beat and the guitar follows the drums. It's like, I, okay, I'm just going to sit back there and put the, the best drum beat behind these gargantuan guitar riffs. And so Is that where the Phil Rudd thing came in? Yeah, I mean, that was the first time I start thinking about just... Heavy backbeat. Yeah, just <laughs> simplifying, yeah. <laughs> simplifying yeah. the Swing. Phil Rudd, uh, what we call the Phil Rudd approach in, in our word, Phil world. Phil Rudd, but our, heavier. It starts with the songs, you know, because the songs have to have that they have to have the the foundation to allow for the subtleties, to allow the space, and to allow for all those types of things. So it was a, a convergence of of all these different energies coming together just at the right time. I remember we were in Enter Sandman, uh, in the chorus of Enter Sandman, kind of that the skip thing in the chorus or whatever, that jump thing there. That was like, I want to try to do a jump. I, I didn't understand what he was saying and because we didn't have the language, you know, like little, just what are these things called? He felt like he was speaking Russian or something. And 
He's it speaking was, Canadian. He was speaking. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, definitely, yeah, absolutely, and specifically the song "Enter Sandman," and that was the song, the crossover song that was heavy enough for our fans to love it, and yet acceptable enough for the layman's ear. It was a real gateway song for the fan to the way you could kind of slip through the door into our catalog. So it captured a, a lot of new family members, that song. As long as you're hooked, you're it's good. Yeah. Because <laughs> that, that will lead you to the other songs. <laughs> it's still about children and kind of their own fears and deaths in their own way. Internally, what fears do you have as a kid? And then it grew to that whole, obviously, the, you know, the prayer and then Bob Rock's son coming in and being the, the answer to the now I lay me down to sleep. That whole thing. Adam Dubin, documentary filmmaker. I actually filmed a moment in the studio where James said during Enter Sandman, oh, I think I want to have a kid reciting the prayer. I don't know why, but at that moment, my camera was rolling and James decided he was going to tell Bob Rock that idea to have the kid. Mick Rock, Bob Rock's son. I'm the voice saying the prayer and Enter Sandman. It wasn't until the night that the album was being released that uh, I was told that I would be on this song. I'm not sure how it came about, but I think James and I, or he had mentioned that he wanted somebody to recite the prayer. And I was up in Vancouver, I went home, to, and I had a studio in my home, and I got my son Mick. I said, just say these words. It wasn't to the music, I said, just say them. And I brought him, and really it was, I put him in just as a mock-up. I thought we were going to probably hire somebody that does that for a living. And we just went, Mick sounds great. Uh, it was all kind of a surprise. I was dirt biking behind our house. And then one day he just like called me in. Sometimes he would work in our home studio. So something along the lines of him coming out and asking me, um, like, I need you to come in. I need you to come do some stuff for me. And so we went inside and he said, you know, I need you to um, just read these lines to me a few times. And I think like, you know, we did it maybe like six, eight times. Just turned 41. So this will be the updated version. Oh boy, remix. Here we here we go. I love it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake. If I die before I wake. Pray the Lord my soul to take. Pray the Lord my soul to take. I was a lot younger, so maybe I didn't really pick up on all of the details or what was happening. But again, being told that the first night, like the song was called Enter Sandman and that my voice was going to be on this song and it's just like, here it is, listen. I was like, it was flabbergasted to be a part, see, see it and hear it. Um, again, goosebumps, right? <laughs> I for sure sounded like a girl, uh, <laughs> a little younger. I think I was like, maybe like nine and a half. It was like recorded, right? So yeah, when it happened, it was kind of cool. What was really cool is that the album obviously did really well, really quickly. They flew myself and Mick actually on the Concorde to England to go to Donington. So we went to Donington, but they wanted Mick to come as a thank you for Sandman, which is, come on, 
We were on the Concord and went to England. That's a pretty cool thing for... He was quite young at the time, right? To me, that shows... I'm not going to say the soft side of Metallica, but they're actually great guys. You know, like great, solid guys. Being able to take friends to concerts and like Metallica would come to town and it would be like the Rock family would go and we would take like friends and my friends would be like, we're standing on the stage beside Metallica. Like it's kind of weird, but it was kind of cool. So we were lucky and still to this day, it's it's kind of a funny story. All my close friends know that I've said it. What do you say? That That's me. Yeah, I used to tell a lot of people when I was younger. It's, now it's kind of a funny thing to look back to. Andrew Sandman guitar solo pretty much wrote itself. I mean, it's the same thing with the solo in The Unforgiven. It just like came out. And it, it seemed like for a lot of the songs, that was the case. I'd sit there, you know, in my house, working on, on the stuff. And that's when I was heavily into composing solos. You know, I wanted to be able to compose the complete solo, you know, maybe leave a little bit for improvisation. I'm like the polar opposite these days. <laughs> like, go in with just a little bit composed and improvise because I want to capture the moment. I want to be spontaneous, be honest, be real. That's what I'm all about these days. But back then, I would compose and the stuff would just come, it would just flow out. And there was nothing that I ever felt like I got really stuck on, you know, like I had in the past and, and on previous albums. For the Black album, I would say most of it just kind of just flowed. And I remember right before it was time for me to start doing the solos. I remember Lars came over to the little apartment that I was staying at, you know, down there in West Hollywood. We're all staying in this one apartment building. And I played him my solo, my solo demos. And he, he was just like, fine, you know, okay, that's good, that's good. And I think maybe, you know, you need to change that part. But very little was changed. I explained to Jason, his sound was very, well, it was really almost like a guitar sound. It was very bright. There was actually no bottom in it. And I said, and I think that's one of those rules, I guess, in that kind of genre where he was. And there was other bass players that had that. But I said, you know, you're all playing the same thing. And to me, the traditional rhythm section is bass and drums. And I said, you can play with the drummer. And then sometimes you can add actual feel that is not what the guitar is doing. I think the pre-chorus in Sandman, he breaks away from just doing the riff. You know, he breaks into actually a Motown feel, believe it or not. Okay, but the thing is, is in terms of the sound, what I said is why don't we just do process of elimination? We did that a lot. But with him, let's get every bass that's ever been made and every amp that's ever been made and just by process of elimination, let's just find the best sound, okay? So that was about a week. And what we ended up with is a standard in every studio, a Fender Precision Bass and an SVT amp, okay? That's what's on the record. We said, this is the new sound. So that bass sound is part of the weight of the Black Album. He became part of the process of finding what his sound was. 
when we figured out how to mic my amps and my rig that I always use to get, you know, the growl was always there from the pick and the anger and the thing, and rah, right, always, and to be able to capture that. So he explained to me about bass waves and like, you know, that the E string open at 440 goes about 17 and 3.46 feet or whatever like that, right? And so the wave at the end of that room, a 20 foot room, that microphone had to be right, boom, there. So, cause I'm playing the big string, like I said, the whole fucking time playing the big string, right? Every once in a while, <laughs> just this other shit, but it's just that big string's opening that. 98% of Metallica songs that time are in E minor, just there I am. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Metallica Podcast Volume 1, The Black Album, Side 3 continues. I was pissed about my upbringing and you know there's still parts of me that is i can't change any of that stuff i write about it i remember in this band room and you start hearing these songs these incredible songs are just like oh my god imagine even in its raw state and it's there for anybody to see in the film you start hearing enter sandman and the unforgiven and you're just like, oh my God, this, I mean, this is not just like another record coming together. This is like, you already had a feeling that something really epic, a real step in rock music was happening here. I kind of felt it. And I think everybody did, even at that early stage. Unforgiven. That feeling of I am so shameful, I am so, such a piece of crap. <laughs> you know, I'm never going to be forgiven for my upbringing, my, my sins of the world, all of that stuff. You know, I didn't think anyone would ever identify with stuff like that. But just taking the risk of putting my heart out there, and if someone said, I don't get it, it's like, okay, that's okay. Because <laughs> you don't identify with my journey. But if I'm writing a piece about something and it's not good then people could criticize it you know here's how it could be you know but if i'm writing from the heart and from scratch it, it really can't be wrong as far as the god that failed and the tuning of it didn't really have much to do with the lyric choice. It's not a real religious sounding song. <laughs> There's no choirs or anything in it, but I don't know. I think I was just taking 
here's here's I've got 10 subject matters. We've got 10 pieces of music. Let's connect the lines. This one goes best with this. And it is part of that whole puzzle, you know? Would uh, the God that failed lyrics work in Holier Than Thou and vice versa? I would make it work. <laughs> the B is good, I don't know. It would just be different. It's just, you gotta go with a gut. You gotta go with your feeling of, you know, a little more ominous feeling. So I think that's how, that, that probably how they got connected. It wasn't, well, this is the tune in the, in, you know, it's wasn't tuned to G for God or something, you know, it wasn't, wasn't like, ah, a moment like that at all. Lizzie Hale, Hailstorm. I still don't have all the answers as to why I'm a rocker chick today, but my foundation being kind of the 70s and 80s, that was kind of what first tugged me into this genre. But with Metallica, with the guitar tones, with the attitude, with the way, I mean, obviously, you know, <laughs> James Hetfield's right hand, <laughs> jackhammer. And I, it just introduced me to this, to this whole other side of this genre. And then when we went into the studio, I mean, I had most of the solos done, including the Unforgiven. But what I had for the Unforgiven, Bob didn't like. When I think about it, it was just like, yeah, it was. I was trying to do something that really wasn't probably the right thing for that, that song. I mean, I was trying to like, do some uh, grandiose composed thing where it's just like that song just, re just really requires just raw emotional playing which is kind of what Bob made me kind of realize it's just go for it type of playing you know and um I had this this worked out thing with harmonies and everything, and Bob just said, this is just like, <laughs> he just didn't hear it. <laughs> and so, hence, hence that, that, that the whole thing, you know, you didn't do your homework. I'm like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Put the pressure on me. I don't care, man. I can still play. You know, it doesn't affect me. I'm not, I'm not the kind of a person to fucking just like throw my guitar back in its case and fucking go home with my tail between my legs. I mean, I'll just sit there and keep on playing. I literally should sit there and keep on playing for fucking 24 hours if I need to, you know? <laughs> the moment where I was, I just felt so proud of what we were doing was wherever I made room and I had brought, some of the Misfits guys in actually to listen to what we were doing. And I was so proud. It's like, Bob, just crank it up. The intro to Rome. giant and their mouths fell open that's when i knew it's like all right because they were the antithesis of what we were going for at that moment too and we were all pretty in, infatuated by what they had accomplished and the fact that they were blown away by it the production i, I felt super proud of that production 
Like, I could, there's no way we could ma ever make the Black Album again. Because it, it's just not going to happen. Because of all those elements. Where they were in their personal lives. You know, everything. And that's what iconic records are. It's like, even Dark Side of the Moon. They could never do that again. It's never going to happen. Even the Beatles records. Everything. Never going to happen. And that's what the beauty... It's that one time, that place in time, where it all came together, and it's, a, it's an amazing thing. That's why I still make records, because I long for having a moment like that again. I've had little moments through my career, like of songs, but like in terms of the album, that just remains as like a very special thing. grew us up so much and i'm glad that we were able to grow him up some and the fact that we experienced this together is meant to be man it is so meant to be and the fact that i'm really proud and grateful that i've helped bob cuz he helped us more than he knows he took on the challenge. He challenged himself. He challenged us to walk into a scary situation. And I miss Bob a lot. He taught me a lot. Yeah, the Black Album at that level was a completely different approach, but not just between Jason and I, obviously because of Bob and Randy in the control room and the songs having a completely different dynamic to them. But also, I think it's important to acknowledge the sense of discovery is that, that there was an excitement in the air, but as a creative person, as a band, as songwriters, a bunch of guys that are interested in creativity and Anytime you're doing something that's new and, and unexplored, I mean, it is just exciting. Coming up on side four of the Metallica podcast, volume one, the black album, Struggle Within. I needed to look outside of myself a little more and bring the challenge of the rest of the band up to another level. And, and it is possible that, you know, they heard, because I'm not really great at hearing the song that everyone else is going to like. I, I like a song, and that's that. All of us struggled with different levels of insecurities about what each of us were bringing to our own instruments, and with compensation was to overplay all the time, overplay, another drum fill, a crazier drum beat, more sideways shit, fucking the craziest thing that I can come up with. There was a point where I, I, I was just like, okay, okay, you know, if no one fucking likes this album, I know the four of us are gonna fucking like this album. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album. 
Executive produced by Lex Friedman for Art19 at Amazon Music. Produced by Lars Murray and Dennis Shire for PopCult. Story producers and writers, Mike Mettler and Catherine Turman. Mixing, sound design and editing, Rob Spate. Showrunner and creative direction, Dennis Shire. If you love what you've heard, give us a five-star review and share this podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and ask your fellow Metallica fans to subscribe too. I'm Claire Sturgis. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.